This is a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. Go to allthews.3cr.org.au. 3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations, true owners, caretakers and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders past and present of the Kulin Nations. We recognise their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning, listeners. We are back on Thursday morning breakfast. Is this our first live show of the year? Yes, it is. Yeah, it's good to be back. Yeah. Uh, back uh, back in the saddle, back in the studio. Um, I mean, Inez has already been back. Yes, uh, we hosted Radio for Palestine with Salam um, last Sunday, which you can listen to um, on 3cr.org.au forward slash Radio for Palestine. Um, a lot of work went into that program and we had really amazing guests, so... Yeah, I got a little sneak preview of what it's like to be in the studio before I came back, which is nice. Yeah, and um, I believe there's still a fundraiser going associated with Radio for Palestine. Are those details on the page? Yes, it is. It's a fundraiser for Bookchair, which is the Palestinian-led you know, art storytelling collective, um, as well as 3CR for live music to air shows, so we can do more of them. Awesome. Um, how are we all feeling this morning? Well, I was just questioning whether or not I had a relaxing quote-unquote break (laughs) and I think the answer might be no but we can do other things apart from relax that are wholesome (laughs) that is true 100 percent. yeah I think uh for me I've just felt like um like I've I've looked at a lot of things I've been doing and I'm like I want to do more of this or Mm. less of that so that's been nice um just like thinking about yeah how to feel more aligned in the work that we do here Yeah. yeah how are you yeah um I had a bit of a a break, like not, you know, stepping away from things entirely, but I did get the chance to see um, like 15 to 20 wombats in one day, <gasps> wow. which was ridiculous. Um, highly encourage people uh, who haven't been to La Truita, um, um to sort of spend some time in Nipaluna, learn about... Um, you know, basically about Tasmanian Aboriginal history um, and about ongoing Tasmanian Aboriginal resistance and um, fights for sovereignty. And, um, yeah, it was kind of amazing to to spend some time down there and, yeah, really, really sort of sit with... um, sit with the impacts of colonisation but also the kind of beautiful like nature of the landscape and um you know human and um non-human kin um and yeah yeah I just I feel like um leading up towards invasion day um you know on January 20th we have um the commemoration of Tanner Minaway and Malbohina um as two resistance fighters who were hanged in NARM, uh, two Tasmanian Aboriginal resistance fighters who were hanged in NARM for their, um, you know, for their resistance activities um, and for, you know, being warriors um, against, uh, you know, colonial violence. 
And so uh, being able to visit Nipaluna um, early this year kind of really put everything into context for the fight for this year and the ongoing you know, struggle and solidarity with Palestine as well. Um, we've got a pretty packed show, so maybe I will just jump into the rundown. Um, but earlier this week, during the Australian Student Environment Network's Victoria training camp, I got to catch up with environmental justice and Indigenous rights activist Uncle Winniata Puru. And Uncle Winnie has a really rich history of environmental activism in solidarity with Aboriginal sovereign-led movements. And he brings a really unique approach to resistance um, through an emphasis on song and dance in protest. And so he shared some reflections about the power of dance's resistance as well as on the Azen camp as well. Um, after that, we're going to be joined by Lockie Chalice, who is a primary school educator and longtime Darabin resident, to talk about a couple of upcoming actions that are being held by the Darabin for Palestine Action Group, and to share some updates about the community's efforts to keep the Palestinian flag flying above the Preston City Hall. Um, so as a Darabin resident, this is very important to me. I'm sure other Darabin residents will be keen to stay tuned to hear about what we can do um, to very, very locally uh, continue to show our solidarity with Palestine and refuse any sort of compromise by political actors in local council, but also um, by the federal member for Cooper, Jed Carney. Yeah, and after that, forensic linguistics expert Dr. Aoni Itewi joins us to discuss incitement of genocide and the role of linguistic evidence in South Africa's ICJ case against the colony of Israel. Dr. Itewi is a lecturer in linguistics and researcher focusing on radicalisation and genocide, incitement to hatred and digital deviance. He is a former United Nations expert on mission and observer of human rights violations in the Democratic Republic of Congo with training in international humanitarian law and the protection of civilians and children. Yeah, that'll be a really important interview. I can't wait to listen. And next up, we have Nathan Van, who is the creator of Queer Connect, who joins us in the studio to talk about Queer Connect, which is like a hub that looks to celebrate the richness of local queer community and also provide representation and, you know, fierce solidarity across communities and creative industries. And they're here to chat to us about their first campaign, Choosing Love, where they showcase 13 local creatives from a variety of backgrounds and industries and explored what love and chosen family means to them uh, with the aim, yeah, to build a stronger sense of community across the arts. Incredible. And an important one to think about in the lead up to Midsummer, where I know a lot of us are kind of uh, questioning the importance of autonomy. Um, for queer folks, uh, autonomy away from colonial capitalist spaces and maybe what it looks like to do more self-determined work. Um, and finally, uh, we are going to be joined by Associate Professor Dina Chavala, who's an expert in international law based at the Australian National University's College of Law to unpack South Africa's case at the International Court of Justice against Israel regarding the application of the Genocide Convention in relation to Israel's assault on Palestinians in Gaza. And I really wanted to have uh, Dr. Chavala on to talk about the differences between the provisional measures and measures stages of the case um, and a bit of detail about the function of the ICJ. And I think importantly, we're also going to be talking about some of the possibilities, but also limitations of appeal to international legal mechanisms in the struggle for Palestinian liberation. Um, so that's all coming up soon. 
Stay tuned to 3CR and uh, we will be back to you shortly with the headlines. What's taking place in Palestine is horrendous. The people of Gaza who have survived ethnic cleansing, three wars and a 16-year siege are now facing the biggest attacks ever mounted against them. This will only stop if governments like ours demand that it stop. Here are some ways that you can keep yourself informed and involved. Listen in to Palestine Remembered every Saturday morning at 9.30am or listen to the podcast. Join the APAN mailing list at apan.org.au for updates, news about actions you can get involved in and where you can donate to provide humanitarian assistance. Listen to other news and current affairs programs on 3CR that also cover Palestine. The oppression of the Palestinian people has been going on for 75 years. It has to stop. You can be part of making that happen by staying informed and active. APAN is a proud supporter of 3CR. And we're back with the news headlines for Thursday the 18th of January. As the International Criminal Court deliberates over South Africa's case against Israel's genocide, Israeli forces continue their blockade and attacks on the people of Gaza. In the past few days, at least 23 Palestinians were killed in Khan Yunus in southern Gaza with Israel. Israeli occupation forces destroying dozens of residential homes and damaging hospitals in areas Palestinians were previously forced to evacuate to. The UN Human Rights Office says every single person in Gaza is suffering from severe hunger and that so-called Israel is weaponizing food access by destroying Gaza's food systems. Meanwhile, in the occupied West Bank, so-called Israel is bulldozing streets and destroying infrastructure in Tulkarim city and refugee camps and conducting raids in neighbourhoods of Ramallah. Among this, the impact of Israeli onslaught continues to escalate tensions in the region, including US and UK drone strikes on um, Houthi or al Asari rebels disrupting Israel's bound ships in the Red Sea. And this week, tensions between Iran, Pakistan and Iraq, resulting in Iranian drone strikes that have killed at least six people. Also in headlines... Papua New Guinea is in a state of emergency after a strike over government worker payroll issues last week evolved into widespread unrest that links back to wealth disparity, high unemployment and poor living conditions for many people in Port Moresby. At least 22 people were killed as a result of the unrest and many small business owners suffered from looting and destruction of property. Rumours and misinformation have been circulating on social media, and PNG's telecommunications minister, Timothy Masiu, this week threatened to shut down the country's access to social media sites, a threat he says will stand for the remainder of the state of emergency. Amnesty International have called out potential violations of human rights in PNG military and police tactics, pointing to alarming directives that authorise the use of lethal force on civilians. In other news... The Australian government has been called out for cruel treatment of refugees and failure to address systemic racism against First Nations people in the recently released Human Rights Watch annual report. The report describes Australia's reputation as tarnished, pointing to long-standing mistreatment of children in juvenile detention and high rates of First Nations incarceration. 
The report also notes that the Australian government's lack of concrete action on human rights issues in key trade partner countries, including human rights abuses against Uyghur people in China and democratic backsliding in India that systemically discriminates against Muslims and Christians. Also in news this week, the federal court has given the green light for the construction of a massive Santos gas pipeline, overthrowing an emergency injunction from Tiwi First Nations and traditional owners who oppose the project. The pipeline will pass within kilometres of the Tiwi Islands, which locals fear will disrupt the underwater songline of the Crocodile Man. Jikilaru man Simon Mankara says the pipeline will pose a risk of environmental and cultural damage as it passes through areas that could be home to objects of archaeological significance. Finally in headlines, an investigative report has revealed that an Israeli lobby group is behind the sacking of journalist Antoinette Latouf at the ABC, with a coordinated campaign targeted ABC leadership. Award-winning journalist and author Antoinette Latouf was terminated by ABC last month for sharing an Instagram post on a Human Rights Watch report about so-called Israel's use of starvation as a weapon of war in Gaza. The investigative report referenced dozens of leaked messages from a WhatsApp group called Lawyers for Israel and detailed how the group, quote, repeatedly wrote to the ABC demanding Latouf be sacked and threatened legal action if she was not, end quote. Ms. Latouf is... Uh, legally challenging her termination. These have been the news headlines for Thursday the 18th of January. You're listening to 3CR. When I was new to Melbourne, I found a Food Not Bombs flyer on the road and I had like this fist with a carrot and carrots are my favourite vegetable. Yeah, I think they were asking for help doing stuff and I got in touch. We, I guess, rescue food. That would otherwise go to waste. I like the aspect of sharing food and um, not making anyone feel obligated to pay anything for it. We make a real point at Food Not Bombs of involving everyone who wants to be involved in whichever part they want to be involved in. For more information, go to fnbmelb.noblogs. Dot org. Food Not Bombs is a 3CR supporter. Stand in solidarity with Palestine this Sunday. With the most devastating attack ever launched on the people of Gaza, it's time for all of us to stand in solidarity with the Palestinian people. Israel has waged war on the Palestinians for the last 75 years. The Nakba ethnic cleansing, occupation of the West Bank, East Jerusalem and Gaza. Israel has now imposed a total blockade on Gaza and declared war, stopping food, electricity and fuel and launching an all-out attack. We have to mobilise to show our support for Palestine. 12pm State Library, this Sunday. Rally to demand freedom and justice for Palestine. No war on Gaza. Free Palestine Melbourne is a 3CR supporter. You're listening to Thursday Morning Breakfast on 3CR 855 AM, and we're about to jump into our first segment of the show. 
So earlier this week, during the Australian Student Environment Network's Victoria Training Camp, I got the opportunity to catch up with environmental justice and Indigenous rights activist Uncle Winniata Puru. Uncle Winnie has a really rich history of environmental activism in solidarity with Aboriginal sovereign-led movements, in particular against nuclear uh, energy testing, weapons testing, um, and extractive industries. And he brings a really unique approach to resistance through an emphasis on song and dance in protests. Uncle Winnie took a moment out of the camp to offer his reflections about the power of dance as resistance and also shared his thoughts on the ASN camp as a whole, which brought together over 100 activists and organizers at Camp Eureka on Wurundjeri country to share skills and strengthen our collective work towards liberation. I'd really like to uh, pay my respects to the traditional custodians of this um, land that we've uh, gathered on, uh, Wurundjeri, and um, yeah, and um, to to the nations within uh, this nation, and uh, yeah, talk about dance, and uh, dance in the way of protesting. The thing is, um, I think we have to really extend uh, protesting to other forms artistically. Uh, And dance is one of the forms of uh, never having to speak, but your actions actually can change the mood of a protest and um, also to express what words you can't um, express. And uh, yes, I've been a dancer for quite a few years. I'm turning 70 soon. And um, so I really want to generate, um, generate non-violence, really, and dance is one of them, because other people can join in. And in my culture, we uh, actually express our anger, it's called huckers. And I think you have seen it in um, football and all that sort of thing, they always do that hucker. But the thing is that there's a gentler way of expressing too. It's not all about war. Huckers are about war. And um, yes, it's really good to express that anger together because there isn't actually violence that you're allowed to express. And, um, but I really like freeform dancing. And... Um, Yes, this dance that I teach um, that actually hasn't been taught for a number of years because of lockdown and all that sort of thing. So um, this is a gentler uh, expression of the dance, and it's uh, I use it to the mu- uh, um, the music to Kev Carmody's song, "Thou Shalt Not Steal." It really is a political statement, and. Um, it's also um, an expression of not religion, but a way of life, I think. It's, uh, I don't know why I do it. I think it's because to give people hope, not only to, um, to divert, yeah, just to divert that anger into something constructive and we have a right to do that and um, 
Yes, this dance, the Laikau dance actually, was performed in um, Wiradjuri country and um, teenagers, uh, Aboriginal teenagers led us into, the, into this gold mine and they led us to a huge bulldozer, huge. And um, so we did this dance with the permission of Kev Carmody and um, with the permission of the um, traditional owners, the Wiradjuri. And um, yeah, we um, performed this dance and it was a relief we did that. But the thing about it that um, when you actually occupy a, a gold mine, whatever mine, mining company, you want to do this dance, they actually have to legally shut it down. So you have time to, um, yeah, do your dance, do a poem, just express why you're there and that dance, yes, that dance is, is performed and hopefully people will um, get the message. And uh, yes, but uh, when we performed that dance, yeah, I think there was about 10 people that were arrested and at the court case it was thrown out because the judge said, no, no, I think dancing on the mine is good. But we did close the mine down and I think we were up to about $4 million that it cost them. Yeah. Amazing. Um, if I might ask you another question, um, I was just wondering about your thoughts on being at the AZEN camp and, you know, the people that you've met here, the people that you've gotten to know over the years and how those relationships have, I guess, informed why you've come back. Because I believe in AZEN, Australian Students Environment Network. I think it's vital that we network with as many people as possible because people are... Because of the lockdown, I think we were shut up. And uh, just the amount of... The thing about the lockdowns is that mining companies were exempt. And um, so they kept on working. But they also brought in the COVID to the remote communities. But I think the community woke up to it and they had to... Um, not allow these um, fly-in, fly-out miners. And um, so I think it's um, every little information that we can share with each other at AZEN is gathering is uh, um, hope. We can't let hope die. And um, gatherings like this with the, with the stories of the young people that are frustrated about doing nothing but want to do something and this gives them tools to, um, to do that and with the influence of the elders and very, very sharp-minded people, um, yeah, it's, um, it motivates people and we all need motivation because it's a duty to do as much as we can to preserve what we have and to improve lifestyles, whether you're gay, whether you're whatever, you know, it's, um, we have a right to have a better life and we need the environment for sure and our cultures, no matter what culture we're from, I think 
that's our differences, uh, in fact, our um, unity. Um, yeah. Thank you so much. Is there anything else that you want to share that you've been thinking about, or? Just keep going. And ASIN and Students of Sustainability is really important for us to gather and get leadership from the elders that are in pain, but they just keep on going with that hope and that love. Be motivated by love and, uh, yeah, listen, listening. And that was a beautiful little clip with some reflections from Uncle Winniata Puru at the Australian Student Environment Network's Victoria Training Camp. And Uncle Winnie is an environmental justice and Indigenous rights activist who's got a long history of environmental, in particular, anti-nuclear activism in solidarity with Aboriginal sovereign-led movements. You're listening to Thursday Morning Breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. And now we're going to go to a track. Yes, we're going to go to a new track by Big Riggs, who is a Palestinian-Irish musician here in Nam. Um, And this song is called Palestinian Flow. So let's take a listen. Time to wait, no more life to waste. Humanity on the line, full of steam, cry, cause it to be saved. Lost another minute by means another child's life. How they mystify, confused about a ceasefire. Leaders' pockets are tight, so leaders always lie. We see what they hide, now the masses grow tired. Yeah, we've seen that they manufacture facts with AI. Facts became lies, and whoever owned the media decide what's right. Whoever got the money can decide who's right. Who's wrong? Profit from disaster Take it all The victory will be the children's laughter 48 days, 49 nights 8,000 babies in paradise Bellies all full, they finally feel nice They've soared for tomorrow Cause today we freedom fight Freedom ain't a God-given right Justified occupies cry will then commit genocide. They don't even know our story. 
Mass graves in the thousands I heard the cries that called up in the mountain Heard that down as past Pat With black and brown kids covered in white powder Yet the colonizers showered and prayed Proud of all the profit they made from pain Ya Allah, all the shame, all the shame Bringing the age, rain or rage Four siders with Sean praise Supporting the wrong prophet Learn life essential when we listen to the plight Of a poor man's pocket And the poor man of today happens to be called Muhammad And that was Falestine Flow by Big Riggs, who is a Palestinian-Irish artist here in Nam. Um, a beautiful song. Definitely go check them out. Amazing. And now we are going to jump into an interview with Lockie Chalice, who is a primary school educator and longtime Darabin resident and who is joining us to talk about several upcoming actions being held by the Darabin for Palestine Action Group and to share updates about the community's efforts to keep the Palestinian flag flying above the Preston City Hall. The first event is tonight's rally outside federal member for Cooper Jed Carney's office at 6 p.m. at 159 High Street in Preston, demanding that Jed take stronger action in support of Palestine. And this is going to be followed by another rally on Monday, the 22nd of January at 5 p.m. outside Preston City Hall, encouraging Darabin residents to continue sending a strong message to Darabin councillors that the community wants the Palestinian flag to stay flying until Palestine is free. Good morning, Lockie. Morning, Priya. Thank you for that summary. Yeah, of course. Thank you for joining us this morning. Um, maybe just to, to start off, can you tell us a little bit about um, the actions leading up to this point? So I understand that Darabin for Palestine had been really involved uh, with uh, Councillor Gaetano Greco in particular to make sure that the flag was raised in the first place, but now that other Darabin councillors are trying to get the flag replaced. Yeah, that's exactly right. So late December, there was a motion passed. Part of it was raising the flag above the city hall. Um, part of it is that the council has said that uh, the BDS movement is is valid. Part of it is that the council is receiving a report at their next uh, regular meeting, um, looking into divesting from companies um, that they deal with that profit from the occupation. Um, and also, the council have already written to the prime minister and the foreign minister about what's happening um, over in Palestine and, and the genocide that Israel's inflicting on Palestinian citizens. So that was the context of December. Um, since then, there's been a few different moves by certain members of Darabin Council to either soften that motion or particularly to bring down the flag. And shamefully, it's being led by some of the Greens councillors on Darabin Council. Um, so on the 8th of January, they called a special meeting, uh, basically... The the intention of the meeting was to cover all the things that they didn't cover in December because they sort of wasted a lot of time trying to keep the, the Palestine issue off the agenda. Mm-hmm. Um, through community pressure, we, we were able to get them to not only get it on the agenda but but, but pass that motion that you mentioned. Um, and on the 8th of January, like I mentioned, they discussed that motion and the majority of councillors voted to, to bring down 
the Palestinian flag from above City Hall. Um, and the, one of the more pernicious parts of it was that they used the upcoming Midsummer Festival and Invasion Day as a bit of an excuse to bring down the flag. So they said, we need to take down the Palestinian flag because we, we want to fly the rainbow flag and we want to fly the Aboriginal flag, um, which, which didn't sit well with the community at all because those struggles are linked. And um, after reaching out to some First Nations organisations and midsummer themselves, no one, none of them are on board with the, with the council's decision. Yeah, and I mean, I think it's a really important point that you've made about those struggles being linked. I mean, one question I would have as well is why the Aboriginal flag is not, you know, flying 365 days a year above, <laughs> above the council and then having other flagpoles available. But then there also is, uh, you know, another empty flagpole on the the council um on the council exactly premises right. is not the, being used absolutely the aboriginal flag does and uh, as it should it flies 365 days a year um and and the flag that's usually put at half mast for invasion day is already up and remains up so it's, it's a totally different flagpole um and like you said there's there's not only a spare flagpole at the at the same kind of building complex but throughout darabin as well yeah so i think this, this comes back to those concerns about, you know, um, all of the myriad ways that Palestine and solidarity with Palestine um, are being, you know, that their attempts to, to sort of silence um, the expression of, you know, both Palestinian nationhood and, um, you know, people's support for that. Um, so... Could you tell us maybe just a little bit, because um, I know you've spoken on um, 3CR or Darabin for Palestine has spoken on uh, 3CR as well about tonight's action and um, what you're demanding in terms of stronger action from Jed Carney, the federal member for Cooper. Because, I mean, I guess there are always some tensions um, about uh, raising concerns, uh, especially with a member of the Labour Party, which is in federal government, uh, to try and affect change from within their own party when, uh, as we've seen, you know, the federal government seems to be pretty um, pretty happy with supporting uh, the Zionist entity. Yes, yeah, spot on. So Jed Carney is the federal member for Cooper, which takes in all of Darabin, where the flag's currently flying, and hopefully it'll, it'll fly for uh, as, as long as it needs to. It also takes in Marybeck, where they passed a similar motion at council late last year, and it also takes in Yara, who passed a, a pro-Palestine motion as well um, in the last couple of months. So every single um, council area within Jed's federal electorate area has passed a pro-Palestine motion. Um, she speaks about she speaks about what's happening in Palestine fairly well, particularly for a, a federal Labor politician, but... Mm, that's about all she does. She she speaks well about it. Um, she she avoids certain words, certain words like genocide or Israel or um, permanent ceasefire and things like that. But she hasn't. We haven't seen any real concrete action. So that's essentially what we want from Jed. We want her to stop talking and sort of do something, which which she has the power to do. So a, a group of us, um, a group of community members, put 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 to her four specific demands. So there's a statement floating around that was developed by some, I think, Greens and Labor state elected officials in New South Wales um, that's quite similar to the motion that was passed in Darabin. Uh, we'd like her to sign that statement. 
APMC, that statement is quite important. I personally see it as fairly important. It has some things in there that Jed shied away from doing so far. Um, there's some asks in there around her role as Assistant Health Minister and the access to healthcare of Gazan refugees. Um, we want Jed to work harder in federal parliament to uh, stop Australia's support for the bombing of Yemen. And then finally, we want her to throw her support behind... Um, there's some petitions floating around, which I'm sure you've seen and many of your listeners have probably signed, around the Australian government investigating um, dual national Australian citizens who are serving in the IDF or have served in the IDF for uh, committing war crimes. Mm. Yeah, and I think it, it is, um, you know, it's important to sort of make sure uh, that there's there's, you know, all this incredible grassroots organising that's going, but also that we do kind of put pressure on, on politicians where we can um, to try and get them to at least, uh, you know, do the bare minimum of, uh, you know, taking a concrete stance against genocide. Um, so can you tell us also a little bit more about the action on Monday and what you're asking from Darabin Council in relation to flying the flag? Yeah, so Monday... Uh, at five o'clock, there's a, a rally outside Preston City Hall where the flag's flying at the moment, the same place that we had the rally on the 18th of December prior to the last council meeting. Um, basically, we want councillors to we want councillors to stop working to weaken the motion. We want councillors to leave the flag flying in Darabin. Uh, there's a few reasons why um, it's inappropriate to bring the flag down. I'll go through them. They're all fairly self-evident. Number one would be that the situation in Gaza and the West Bank today or on the 8th of January or probably on the 22nd um, when we have this rally is far worse than it was on December 18th when the motion was initially passed. So there's no reason to bring the flag down when the situation has not improved. We haven't found... There hasn't been a solution found. The genocide hasn't stopped. And in fact, unfortunately and very sadly, things are far, far worse than they were. Um, there was no community consultation of any substantive amount at all in, in that um, motion being brought. It was presented, like I said before, um, it was presented as necessary to fly the, the flags of other communities um, to, to retain community cohesion and, and um, support for those sort of important but linked struggles within Darabin. Mm. But then many people within our group um, identify as um, queer or somewhere on the LGBTQIA plus um, in, in that area. Mm-hmm. And many people that we um, speak to and that are in our group as well are Aboriginal, Torres Strait Islander or First Nations. And to a person, they're disgusted that the council would try and use um, them and their identities and their communities as an excuse to bring down the Palestinian flag. So all of those things added to... Um, when, when I was walking around the other day flying for the Jed rally, every person that walked past said something like, great, I'll see you Thursday. Yes, thank you very much. You know, all of those sort of things. So the support in the community for a free Palestine is overwhelming um, and totally out of step with what the council wants to do. So we want them um, to take, take their hands off the flag. We want them to do all the things they said that they would do on December 18th and we want them to do them wholeheartedly so that they are... Um, like the Darabin community, doing everything within their power to work towards a free Palestine. 
Fantastic. And um, wishing you all the best with that action. We'll have information about that in our show notes and really encourage all Darabin residents that are listening right now to get along to tonight's rally and also to Monday's rally to sign those petitions if you haven't already. And again, um, that'll be in our show notes, but you can also, I believe, follow um, at Darabin and then the number four Palestine on Instagram. Is that right? I think that's right. Yeah. Okay, perfect. Well, thank you so much, Lockie, for taking the time to speak with us this morning. Thanks so much. And that was Lockie Chalice, a primary school educator and longtime Darabin resident, who spoke with us about several upcoming actions being held by the Darabin for Palestine Action Group and to share some updates about the community's efforts to keep the Palestinian flag flying above the Preston City Hall until Palestine is free. You're listening to Thursday Morning Breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. Call out to protect country. Come to Catalyst Social Centre on Thursday, January 18 to hear from senior Gugatha elder Auntie Sue Hasseldine about a space launch company that set up a rocket range threatening sacred sites and the incredible biodiversity of the desert. Come and learn how you can get involved to support the campaign and go for a trip out to Gugatha country headed by Auntie Sue. Info session from 4 till 5pm, films and delicious organic vegan food by Food Not Bombs at 6pm. Rocket Wreckers Benefit Gig, 7 till 11 p.m., featuring Rotary Hose, Aoife Dermody Traditional Irish Singing, Solidarity Sound Systems Dub Reggae, DJ Carlito with Future Afro and Latin Dance Floor, and DJ Bass Mama. $10 cash, no one turned away. All funds raised go to Auntie Sue's campaign to protect country. Join us at Catalyst Social Centre, 144 Sydney Road, Coburg, Thursday, 18th of January from 4 till 11 p.m. Rocket Wreckers is a 3CR supporter. Don't know what to do with the kids in January? Well, have I got news for you. 3CR is doing a live broadcast of the Tanamina Way and Moorboyhina commemoration at the corner of Victoria and Franklin Street in Melbourne. This is the 17th year of the commemoration for the public execution of Tanaminaway and Moorboyhina, two Indigenous freedom fighters who were hung on the 20th of January for resisting white colonisation. It's a great education experience for the children. It's a children-friendly event. Come along, and if you can't come along, Listen in to the first hour on Community Radio 3CR, midday to 1pm, Saturday, the 20th of January. Let it be written in the maze, the survival of a culture is the reason that we made it. Yeah. Spirit time, keep it all our story. I'm Jeffrey. I'm Alphonse. I'm Erwin. And we, we are, are from, from the Voice of West Papua. Tuesday, 6.30 until 7.30 p.m. News and music from West Papua.
you have a few children's picture books or footy boots that your kids have outgrown but want to find them a loving home? Well, drop them in at 3CR and put them in the Books and Boots bin. Books and Boots regularly sends pre-loved children's picture books and sports footwear to remote and regional First Nations communities and children across the country. Contact us at Books and Boots or go to the website www.booksandboots.org.au We love a good book. Next up, we're hearing from linguistics, uh, forensic linguistics expert Dr. Aoni Itewi, who joins us this morning to discuss incitement of genocide and the role of linguistic evidence in South Africa's ICJ case against the colony of Israel. Dr. Itewi is a lecturer in linguistics and a researcher focusing on radicalisation and genocide, incitement to hatred and digital deviance. He is a former United Nations expert on mission and an observer of human rights violations in the Democratic Republic of Congo with training in international humanitarian law and the protection of civilians and children. Good morning, Dr. Itewi, and um, I understand you're joining us very early from Darwin, so thank you so much for your time. Good morning. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for being here. Um, so, first up, I thought we could go over what exactly is forensic linguistics. Can you explain that to us? And how can linguistic evidence be used as a tool for enforcing international humanitarian law? Well, this is a very interesting question. Um, first of all, forensic linguistics is a branch of applied linguistics. that refers to the application of linguistic techniques to investigate and aid in establishing evidence of a crime in which language data forms part of the evidence. So forensic linguists more and more frequently act as expert witnesses in courts, and they act as consultants and members of interrogation team on full-time basis. Forensic linguists are frequently called in to help a court answer one or both of two questions. The first is, what does a a given text say, and the focus here is on meaning and text function. Mm-hmm. What does a what does a text do in a specific context, as in the context of genocide? And the second question is, who is the text author? Mm-hmm. And here we look at the distinctiveness and consistency of style markers, and we compare question text with known text. So linguists give linguistic evidence in court such, uh, in such cases. And in answering these two questions, we draw on knowledge and techniques derived from one or more of sub-areas in descriptive linguistics. And by that, I refer to knowledge in syntax, semantics, lexis, pragmatics, discourse analysis, and corpus linguistics, and any other uh, analytical tool. And so it is a discipline that has its own professional association, and uh, that was founded in 1993, and it has its own biennial um, international conference, its prestigious uh, peer-reviewed academic journals, and big names in linguistics such as Roger Shai in the USA and Malcolm Colford in the UK. Mm. And uh, when it comes to um, what linguistic evidence uh, uh, does and how it serves um, to, how it serves justice, well, 
Uh, I've got to say that lawyers and judges usually see themselves as the, guard, the, the guardians of the meaning of legal text. Mm, yeah. uh, but some judges consider it, uh, consider it it is their function and the function of the court to decide on meaning. And thus linguists may occasionally be allowed to express expert opinion. So uh, linguists are invited based on the court understanding that they need an expert in language to, uh, to explain what's going on here. So experts give opinion, uh, expert opinion, um, where the language is the decisive element, as in the case of incitement to genocide or communicating threats against some people. Yeah. So yeah. it yeah. sounds like it can be a really powerful tool and quite a broad and interesting subject. So today we're focusing on the context of genocide in Palestine and the ICJ hearings. So. Now we know what exactly forensic linguistics is and how it can be applied in the court of law. I want to pivot to the ICJ hearings. So yep. South Africa presented overwhelmingly condemning evidence to actually success, potentially successfully convict Israel of genocide in Palestine, but historically it can take years for the ICJ to reach a verdict. Um, under universal declaration of human rights criteria what exactly is quote incitement to genocide end quote and how could this charge hold israel accountable for their genocidal actions in lieu of a verdict on south africa's icj case well um this is a very important question actually incitement to genocide is one of the acts that are punishable by the Genocide Convention. Mm -hmm. So the convention is a convention on the prevention and punishment of the crime of genocide. And incitement to genocide uh, is a correct a crime. So it, mm -hmm. is a step, it is a step towards the crime of genocide. And it doesn't require any genocidal act to be, uh, to be carried out as long as there is evidence um, of engagement in this kind of, uh, of a crime. Yeah. And here we are referring to uh, international speech crime. Uh, it, it is the speech that is criminalized under international law. And uh, this probably mirrors the language that was used in the, in the 1994 genocide in Rwanda, where the language, where the role of language of media propaganda and key leaders was obvious in inciting Rwandan Hutus um, to attack the Tutsi, mm. and the same appeared uh, in relation to the Nuremberg trials of 1945 and 1946. And propaganda again became one of the international cr criminal tribunal for former Yugoslavia overarching explanations for why neighbors in former Yugoslavia became killers during 1991-1995. And the same now appears in the context of Palestine. So, first of all, we need to understand that incitement is an incorrect crime under yeah. international criminal law. It's intended a crime, that is genocide, doesn't need to actually occur to be proven. And prosecutors do not need to seek a causal link between the speech function and the subsequent genocidal act, although this is possible by... Uh, reverse engineering what, the, what happened after each of these statements. Yes. So when we say the crime is incorrect, we say that it is a step towards the commission of another crime, the step in itself being serious enough 
to merit punishment. Yes. And yes. and uh, the application to the court, to the International uh, Court of Justice, included nine pages full of statements and texts that were that had the uh, inciting uh, nature mm-hmm. that that are direct and public, and they uh, encode the criminal intentionality. And language can play a very important role in, in establishing evidence of the directness, publicness, and the criminal intentionality. So the judge doesn't have to look at any link between the language and the criminal act, um, although that is well established in the case, uh, but what is necessary is to establish engagement in incitement to genocide yes. itself. So yes. there are two elements in this crime. The physical element, that is the killing member of the, of the group, causing serious bodily and, uh, or man, uh, mentally harm, deliberately inflicting on the group conditions of life calculated to bring about its physical destruction and whole and part, and imposing measures intended to, prove, uh, to prevent birth within the group, as well as forcibly transferring children of the group to another group. The second element is the mental element, the intent to destroy in whole or in part a national, ethnic, racial, or religious group. And this second element, the mental element, um, one way to establish it, establish evidence of it, is through looking at language that is used, uh, used in direct public incitement to commit genocide. Yeah. So do you think that a charge of incitement to genocide has potential to convict um, the Israel colony of crimes more promptly than a full verdict of genocide as brought by South Africa? Well, I think South Africa uh, has requested an interim uh, decision to halt the operations before it is too late. And um, in challenge to any decision uh, to be taken by the court, um, Benjamin Netanyahu uh, on Twitter or on X, he uh, tweeted that no one can stop us. Mm. Not the head, not the axis of evil, and nobody else. So he's challenging the court beforehand, and he's considering uh, all the activities or the genocidal acts going on as as being justified and in self-defense, regardless of the decision that will be taken now or later. But uh, in the application itself, South Africa has requested the the court to take an interim uh, decision to hold the operations until the decision is taken. We understand that there is a lot of political and diplomatic pressure on the court, um, and it's not easy because it's the first time that uh, a nation takes Israel to the court, and Israel finds itself... Uh, unable to uh, refute the uh, the allegations, but to consider them self-defense. Mm. Although the international law, uh, uh, within the context of occupation, doesn't give the right to self-defense to the occupation force against violence emanating from within the occupied territory. Yes. And any act of self-defense should not um, violate the international law or lead to any war crimes or all crimes against humanity established by a lot of organizations connected to the United Nations. But yes, yes, there is evidence that can be established uh, by looking at language, and uh, the, the court 
can rely on that to prevent any genocidal acts if Israel insists and the court finds it that there are no genocidal acts. Yeah. For example. That, um, yeah. Well, that just reminded me of um, an interesting quote I came across uh, in terms of Israel's response to the case brought by South Africa. Um, as Malcolm Shaw put it, one of their defence lawyers, that their genocidal language um, that was you know, presented as part of the evidence in court is, quote, this is Malcolm Shaw's response, clearly rhetorical, made in the aftermath of an event which severely traumatised Israel and which cannot be seen as demanding genocide, end quote. And I was wondering if you could comment on the potential of an incitement charge um, wherein rhetoric itself is incriminating to derail their weak narrative of denial. Like, to me, it kind of seems like their defence is incriminating in itself. Yeah, thank you. Well, um, the touchstone and the background against which any court um, looking at genocide case would be looking at the language that was used in Rwanda, uh, former Yugoslavia, and during the Second World War by Nazi Germany then. Um, so if the linguistic strategies and the kind of language that is used within the context of war on Gaza is similar to these, then there is no mm. excuse not to consider them as such. Um, and regardless, the defense team can, of course, claim whatever, but at the end of the day, the court needs to look uh, to build a corpus of language that is related to gen genocidal context and decide whether, yes, this language mirrors previous genocidal context or not. Um, rhetoric itself and engagement in propaganda that incite violence is considered part of the evidence. And this was obvious in the 1994 Rwanda, uh, Rwanda genocide. Uh, so the official radio uh, then was involved by propaganda that justified violence. And uh, one, of the, one of the repeated um, utterances then was go to work. So this go to work was not obvious or explicit enough for the court to tell that, yes, there is an incitement to genocide. But when interviewing uh, individuals who were acting after receiving this call uh, live, then they said, yes, that was a code. Go to work meant in that context that we go and kill the Tutsis. So we need to understand where language is used. So context is very important. Uh, and, of course, we need to understand the speech event. First of all, as linguists, we look at the speech event. That is the activity in which this language was used. And all these instances of language were used within the context of war in Gaza. And here I quote um, Israeli Defense Minister Yoav Gallant, mm -hmm. who said in one of the um, press conferences, I have ordered a complete siege on the Gaza Strip. There will be no electricity, no food, no fuel. Everything is closed. We are fighting human animals, and we are acting accordingly. So the Israeli defense uh, team here, although they describe this as a kind of rhetoric, but this kind of rhetoric was issued by uh, Yuav Gallant, the, the, the defense minister. He is in leadership uh, role. 
and mm. he was talking, yeah. his words are taken by soldiers and commands as such. And they were acknowledged that they were treating Palestinians as human animals. And the strategy here is positioning strategy. Mm. So he's positioning the victims as being human animals. And by assigning them this value and this status, they are, they are sanctioning and sanctifying the criminal act. Uh, they are not dealing with human beings so that they give them human treatment. So first of all, Palestinians in Gaza are human animals, and this is the kind of treatment they deserve. And this kind of demonization uh, is acknowledged by the uh, International Court of Justice as language of incitement to genocide, as proved in Rwanda, former Yugoslavia, and other, uh, other places. Yeah. Um, and, of course, this kind of declaration has two parts. First, I have ordered a complete siege on the Gaza Strip, blah, blah, blah. That is a declaration of a change in the world. This is what's going on now. The world will fix our minds, how we think what, what should happen in, in the real world. And then they're declaring that they are dealing with the human animals and we will deal with them accordingly. We are, we are acting accordingly. It's not I am acting accordingly, yeah. we. Yeah. So the, the collective intentionality is encoded in this kind of language. And this is, yeah. these are the can, areas that will help the, the court. Yes. Yeah, I can see how strong that evidence is um, when you analyse those texts. And yeah, I'm hopeful that we have collected enough language data to hopefully lead to prompt convictions or orders from the International Court of Justice. Dr Itewi, thank you so much for joining us this morning. You have a wealth of knowledge and I could have talked a lot longer, but we're going to have to wrap it up now. Um, Yeah, thank you so much for joining us early up in Darwin and have a great morning. Thank you so much. It's my pleasure and I wish you a fantastic Dave, thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. We just heard from for- forensic linguistics expert Dr. Orni Atewi, who joined us this morning to discuss incitement of genocide and the role of linguistic ele- uh, evidence in South Africa's ICJ case against the colony of Israel. Dr. Itewi is a lecturer in linguistics and researcher focusing on radicalisation and genocide, incitement to ha- hatred and digital deviance. And you're listening to Thursday Breakfast on 3CR, 855 AM. And now we'll go to our very next interview, which is very exciting. We have Nathan Van in the studio, who is the creator of Queer Connect, a hub that looks to celebrate the richness of local queer community and aims to provide a hub so that people can see themselves proudly and fiercely represented. They're here to chat to us about their first campaign, Choosing Love, where they showcase 13 local creatives from a variety of backgrounds and industries where they explored love and chosen family. Thanks so much for joining us here today, Nathan. Oh my God, thank you for having me. I'm so excited to be here. This is so good. Uh, Yeah, it's really beautiful to come in really 
Come in early to the studio. Bright and early. Bright and early. <laughs> um, maybe we could start with how Queer Connect and Choosing Love came about and particularly, you know, what gaps did you want to bridge between different arts and media sectors? Yeah, absolutely. So um, Queer Connect um, was actually inspired by a song lyric um, by an artist called Mary M. They have a song called Rogue. And one of the lyrics in that song was, um, you're choosing love and going rogue. And that really resonated with me, I think, as a queer artist who grew up southeast. And um, it was this idea that in growing up queer, a lot of the systems around us are kind of set up by cishet people. Um, and these systems don't always work for queer individuals. And so this idea of that we have to almost go rogue. And I think that the best way to do that is to step forward choosing love, which was kind of where the idea of our first campaign came from. Um, and this idea of connecting artists um, came from, I used to work at an art event on Chapel Street um, out of Two Wrongs called Bad Art and Beer, a very iconic art event. And I got to meet a lot of queer creatives from across the scene, like the ballroom community, the drag community, fashion, comedy. And I really wanted to find this way of like expanding on this idea of chosen family onto like a community level and connecting all of the queer artists across these art sectors so that we could support each other's gigs throughout the space and kind of connect the scene here in Nam a little bit more. Yeah, it's really beautiful that you have thought about that because sometimes it can feel really disconnected, um, particularly across sectors. And I know, you know, following on from what you've said about Chosen Family, I also know that, you know, um, Choosing Love wanted to really cater to young people as well. But just on the topic of, I guess, Chosen Family, young people as well, young queer people, we know that Chosen Family, it's a relationships that are often strengthened over years and can take a commitment. So I guess what do you look for in a chosen family and particularly how does this differ from just being in community with other queer people? Well I think community to queer people is really important always um, first and foremost but I think that the idea of chosen family has always been a really massive thing for queer people. Um, You have like I think you hear a lot about how queer people grow up and maybe don't always have the best relationships with their with their blood families. Um, but I think even for those in the community who do have strong relationships with their family, that a chosen family is just like an invaluable bond. I think it goes beyond this idea of unconditional love and is just the people around you that can completely and wholeheartedly understand your experience growing up and... Um, I think regardless of who you are within the community, we all share similar experiences growing up that allows us to relate on a level that sometimes may be our family or even like the allies and cishet people in our lives don't fully understand. And so I think having those bonds with your chosen family is so valuable and it's why I wanted to really hammer in that idea with this first campaign and with Queer Connect as a whole. Yeah, that's. I think that's a really important distinction. So thank you so much for... Yeah, a really thoughtful and insightful answer. And when you were talking to the artists um, in Choosing Love and Queer Connect about chosen family and love and growing up queer, uh, did you maybe pick up on some common themes or challenges that people were describing? Oh my God, absolutely. I think we had a question when we did the interviews with our first cast of Choosing Love, which was... um, what does choosing love mean to you? And I was 
I, I really agreed with the sentiment that I think was echoed throughout most of the cast, which was this idea of, um, it's actually ironically a very like famous RuPaul quote of like, if you can't love yourself, how are you going to love anybody else? And I think a lot of the cast really identify with that idea of choosing love doesn't always necessarily mean choosing to love those around you if you can't choose to love yourself first. And I think for queer people growing up not always feeling seen or feeling a bit outcast, that idea of finding yourself and choosing to love you and then allowing that energy to attract the energy that you want in your life and around you and find those similar energies instead of maybe searching for them um, was definitely a sentiment that, yeah, was shared amongst most of the cast, which I found, like, really cute. I was like, oh, my God, I love this. Like, yes, choose yourself too. Yeah, definitely. I think choosing yourself. But, um, you know, when you speak about like community or chosen family, like a lot of us are also, I guess, healed (laughs) or can work things out relationally as well because we don't, you know, exist in a vacuum. Um, But yeah, when we were thinking about, you know, choosing love, what was kind of the process like? Because I know that choosing love, there's 13 creatives and then you take pictures of them and then there's also, you know, uh, bios. But I guess, yeah, walk us through a little bit of what the project is like. Okay, so um, on the shoot day, what we did was we had a cast of 13 individuals from all across the Nam creative scene. We had comedians, theatre performers, drag artists, um, people in fashion and comedy um, and a Beyond that, we wanted to make sure that the cast was super diverse in all other forms as well. We had a lot of different identities represented in that room. And I think that was really important to me to showcase this idea so that when we are talking about this cast and um, showing it to younger audiences, um, it's about making sure that people see themselves in this cast and maybe you don't see yourself fully in any one of these individuals but you should see like aspects of yourself whether you're a trans woman or you're you want to be a drag queen or you whatever it may be you then can identify with those aspects and see that those creatives are succeeding in the scene and if you don't see yourself fully represented then that's your window to be that person and come and like join this bubble. And so, yeah, we did all the interviews and the photo series um, just to like really uplift that cast and show off the talent and the people in that room. Yeah, that's amazing. I think it's a really beautiful project. And um, I think lastly, before maybe we wrap up for this interview, I know a key theme of, you know, the show and a lot of the stuff that you've described is demonstrating that a career in the arts is possible um, because it can be really difficult. You're like, I don't know people. Where do I get funding from? Um, But is there anything that you would like to say to people listening on that, particularly, you know, young queer artists as well? And where can people find out more about Queer Connect? Absolutely. So, um, yeah, the big focus, of course, was um, how do we uplift this scene further. So um, if you head over to our website, queerconnect.com.au or to our Instagram, which is queerconnectnam, um, you should be able to find some resources there. We have an events page that we're setting up that we're going to be posting local gigs in Nam across all of the creative scene, whether that's comedy, fashion, ballroom, you name it. And I'd love to encourage people from those scenes, if you have an event coming, to reach out to us and we'll add it to the calendar. And I think that's a gorgeous way for people who may not necessarily know the steps 
themselves yet how to find these communities and find the people they want to be a part of to come down to the website have a look at the events page and grab a ticket or come and meet some of these people it's a lot about like queer people putting our money to other queer creatives and supporting the scene and if you can come and get a ticket to any of these events and get involved and meet the community then it's a win for everybody yeah that's so amazing I think the sentiment that I can hear in your voice it sounds you are very passionate about it but also that it's a hub for people that don't know where to go Um, and that building solidarity with people and having community and chosen family they're all different but they're all enmeshed together and you know having representation that feels authentic but it's not just alone it's not siloed it's also a part of um, a broader hub or collective I think that's really special so thanks so much for coming on the show today oh my god no thank you for having us it's been such a pleasure oh no problem thank you so much hope you have a really lovely rest of your day and please check out Queer Connect Okay, and that was Nathan Van, the creator of Queer Connect, a hub that looks to celebrate the richness of our local queer community and aims to provide a hub for people to see themselves represented proudly and fiercely across communities. And she chatted to us about their first campaign, Choosing Love, where they showcased 13 local creatives from a variety of backgrounds and industries, explored what love and chosen family means to them. You're listening to 3CR 855 AM. It's currently 8.13. Trans Family is a not-for-profit organization providing a peer support group for loved ones including parents, siblings, extended family, and friends of a trans and gender diverse person. Trans Family runs discussion groups in person and online. We offer a safe space to share your experiences, ask any questions regarding your situation, and provide peer support. We are especially keen to hear from loved ones in regional and rural Victoria. Donations to Trans Family are tax deductible. For more information, visit transfamily.org.au or look for us on Facebook. Trans Family is a 3CR supporter. I'm Jeffrey. I'm Alphonse. I'm Erwin. And we, we are, are from, from the Voice of West Papua. Tuesday, 6.30 until 7.30 p.m. News and music from West Papua. And we are back on Thursday morning breakfast on 3CR 855 AM for our final interview for the day. And we are now going to be joined by Associate Professor Dina Javala, who's an expert in international law based at the Australian National University's College of Law, who's joining us to unpack South Africa's case at the International Court of Justice against Israel regarding the application of the Genocide Convention in relation to Israel's assault on Palestinians in Gaza. So our conversation with Dr. Javala will include a discussion of differences between the provisional and measures stages of the case, details about the function of the IC and a bit of an exploration of the possibilities and limitations of appealing to international legal mechanisms in the struggle for Palestinian liberation. Good morning, Dr. Javala. Good morning to you and to your listeners. 
Yeah, thanks so much for joining us. So I thought maybe we could begin with a, a brief explanation of the role of the International Court of Justice as an institution of international law and maybe use this to contextualize the case South Africa's brought against Israel as regards the Genocide Convention. So what is the core business of the ICJ and how are cases brought, considering that part of this very process was disputed by Israel's legal team in last week's statements? Of course. So first, thanks for having me. Um, the ICJ is the main judicial organ of the United Nations. And um, it can only hear uh, cases brought by states against states. So what is really important about this case is it's not going to determine the guilt of any individual Israeli official. It is going to determine whether Israel as a state, as a legal entity, has violated um, the the Genocide Convention, right? And, and South Africa actually addressed laws by saying, for example, you know, even if we wanted, we couldn't have brought a case against Hamas, right? So that is core business. What makes it a little bit tricky is that it doesn't have automatic jurisdiction over states just because states are members of the United Nations, right? States need to specifically accept its jurisdiction, which means in many, many cases, it is actually impossible to engage the court. One of the advantages of the Genocide Convention is that it provides for compulsory ICJ jurisdiction in case there is a disagreement um, about the convention, right? So apart from the fact that, you know, South Africa, as many of us, genuinely believes also that um, Israel is committing genocide, engaging the Genocide Convention has also the advantage of giving the court jurisdiction, which otherwise would be a problem, right? So a state, be it South Africa otherwise, cannot bring a case saying that Israel is committing war crimes, even though, in my view, it is absolutely obvious that it is, or that it is committing um, um, other crimes uh, of international, under international law, the crime of apartheid or um, ethnic cleansing, because the court, unfortunately, wouldn't have jurisdiction to pronounce on that. Mm. Yeah, and I mean... You know, what you've mentioned about states needing to actually accept the jurisdiction of the court for this to be, um, you know, for, for, for the court to actually be able to to take, um, you know, to take this matter on in the first place, I think is interesting. A lot of people have been pointing out the fact that, you know, Israel was interested in, in the Genocide Convention in the first place because of, you know, what happened in World War II. Now... Those following this case will also understand that last week's hearings were held to determine the need for provisional measures to be announced by the court prior to the full assessment of the merits of South Africa's case mm -hmm. against Israel. So can you take us through some of the differences between these two stages, including their relative time frames? Absolutely. So time frame, um, the reason we have the provisional measures is that, unfortunately, the merits, so the substance, usually takes years. Right. So if the case proceeds to the merits, we will not have a final decision from years from now, which is why South Africa, given the dire humanitarian situation in Palestine, is asking for provisional measures, which is 
what in domestic law for your listeners we would call an injunction, right? The time frame for this should be very short. So um, the the court um, judges are rotating on the 6th of February. So there will be a different, partially, you know, a different, um, uh, uh, the, the judges will be different after the 6th. So it is fair to accept that the court will hand down its provisional measure, if any, before the 6th of February, so within the next two weeks. So pretty quickly, within roughly a month since South Africa submitted um, its initial application. The difference in terms of substance is that South Africa, for now, don't need to show that they are correct. They just need to show that they have a plausible case. They don't need to show that their claim that Israel is committing genocide is a right. It is enough to, say, to show that it is plausible. And it is, they also have to show that the right in question, which in this case is, you know, so crucial, like the right of Palestinian people in Gaza not to be subject to genocide would suffer irreparable harm if provisional measures were not indicated. So these are the two things South Africa has to do for now, which arguably are easier bars to clear up mm -hmm. than what South Africa would have to do in the merit stage, which is they would have to show you know, that the crime, the genocide is actually being committed, which, as, you know, your listeners might have heard, is notoriously difficult because you have to show genocidal intent. And that is always very, very complicated to do. Yeah. And, I mean, you know, part of what we've we've talked about is uh, the need for states to kind of buy into the court's jurisdiction here. And... Given that Israel's brutal assault and siege on Palestinians in Gaza it continues apace, accompanied by an escalation of violence against Palestinians in the West Bank, can you give us your frank assessment of how anticipated outcomes of last week's and also future ICJ proceedings will tangibly affect these situations? Because, of course, there are questions about enforceability in particular. And we just uh, spoke with forensic linguist Dr. Aonia Taiwe about um you know, about the, the use of rhetoric and uh, mm. about statements from uh, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu um, basically saying that uh, it, it's uh, that Israel is not going to, to stop. And so I was thinking about, you know, some of the limitations of international law itself here. Yeah, absolutely. So as you implied, one of the most crucial provisional measures that, uh, that South Africa has requested is the immediate of military hostilities, military activities by Israel, right? That's the most crucial and the most ambitious one, and I would say the one that is most at question about what, what the court is going to do. So Israel, as you say, has already even, you know, tweeted, as they tend to do, um, saying that they will not comply. And, of course, that's part of the problem, right? Israel has a very, very long history of not complying um, with either judicial organs or human rights bodies that have unequivocally um, said that what they're doing is illegal. Um, and part of the problem here is that the only way to enforce um, an ICJ decision, if states don't do so voluntarily, is through the UN Security Council, right? But of course, they are, um, Israel uh, knows that the United States 
um, also potentially the UK, uh, will veto any um, effort to actually enforce the decision. That being said, I wouldn't say that this makes a potential decision um, totally, you know, inconsequential, right? Um, so, for example, the decision could be used to put pressure on Israel's allies, if not necessarily the United States, perhaps EU member states, Australia or Canada, that have been posturing at least about international law and the so-called rules-based international order, I think would have trouble continuing as they are. Or, for example, in many places, there are cases contesting weapons exports against Israel. If the ICJ hands down provisional measures that demand some form of cessation of hostilities, I think that will give a boost to people, to, to Palestinians and to their allies who have brought these cases, right? And at the same time, I think despite Israel's posturing um, and um, contempt for international law, at the same time, already South Africa bringing the case has had some effect on its behavior, right? For example, for the first time in 100 days, um, the Attorney General indicated that they might prosecute um, people for incitement uh, to genocide, right? Or Israel has been making some largely symbolic but real moves about letting in um, to Gaza more humanitarian aid. I'm not saying that any of that is enough or is honest, but it shows that even having a case not even being decided can I mean, if they if they actually made good on a commitment to start, uh, you know, domestic prosecutions for incitement, then I feel like a lot of the Knesset has to watch out. Um, so in the I guess just to wrap up, um, I wanted to yeah turn uh, to Australia's place in these matters, given its stated and consistent support for Israel's campaign. But it's, um, you know, it's it's sort of continued kind of lukewarm references to uh Israel has the right to defend itself, but the way that it does matters and we care about international humanitarian law. So um, just to wrap up, what role exists um, for other states, including Australia, to support South Africa's case if, you know, if it does decide to change its mind? Um, and on the other hand, if the ICJ finds in favor of South Africa eventually, will states aiding and abetting Israel's treatment of Palestinians face any attendant consequences? Absolutely. So many um, have... Um Flag, you know, the discrepancy between um, Australia's position, for example, in the Gambia versus Myanmar case uh, or in the case of Ukraine against Russia and their position um, here, right? Uh, Australia has shown no interest in intervening um, in the case to support South Africa. And in fact, um, just yesterday, Penny Wong said, you know, we respect the ICJ, but we don't accept um South Africa's press, right? So they have clearly distanced themselves. 
Um, at the same time, as I said earlier, yes, I do think that ECBISJ indicates provisional measures. I don't, I'm not necessarily thinking that Australia will switch its position automatically, but I think, again, it will be a useful tool for Palestinians and their allies in Australia to put pressure um, for a change in position, including, once again, the export uh, of weapons um, to, to Israel. So um, I think it can be used as a tool of advocacy. And I think also in the case of Australia and other Western countries, it can also be used as a tool to highlight the hypocrisy and double standards, both in international law, but more importantly, you know, in international politics and international relations, right? The gap between Australia's position when it came to Russia's invasion of Ukraine and its position when it comes to Gaza is, is glaring, right? It's, it's everyone. It's there for everyone to see. And I think if there is a specially court decision, it will make it even starker. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I mean... As you've mentioned, this is really just one tool amongst uh, a diversity of tactics, um, you know, in the struggle for Palestinian liberation. Um, and I really appreciate the clarity that you've kind of brought to this case about, you know, what the what the ICJ can do, how long it might take, and um, the need to kind of recognize this as one component of, of a broader fight. So. Uh, Dr. Dina Javala, thank you so much for making the time to speak with us this morning. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks to everyone for listening. Okay. And that was Associate Professor Dina Javala, an expert in international law based at the Australian National University's College of Law, who spoke with us about South Africa's case at the International Court of Justice against Israel regarding the application of the Genocide Convention in relation to Israel's assault on Palestinians in Gaza. And we discussed some of the differences between the provisional and measures stages of the case, details about the function of the ICJ, and we also talked a bit about the possibilities and limitations of appealing to international legal mechanisms in the struggle for Palestinian liberation. Now, that's about all we've got time for today on Thursday Morning Breakfast. So thanks so much for joining us for our first show, uh, our first live show back for 2024. And uh, catch you at the uh, Palestine Solidarity Rally again this Sunday at 12 p.m. Um, and apart from that, we will see you next week, same time, 7 to 8.30 a.m. on 3CR 855 a.m. Until then, take care. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.